Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto, Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash MilkStreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. (music) 
This is Mostly Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're learning about the hottest chili pepper in the world, the Carolina Reaper. Smokin' Ed Curry, creator of the Reaper, explains the addiction to eating insanely hot food. Some people actually find extreme pleasure in extreme pain. One of our mottos is the Pucker Pup Pepper Company is where hot sauce heroes come to die, you know? And people literally come in all day long and say, hurt me, you know, and uh, I can hurt them. <laughs> also coming up, Alex Inu's brews beer at home using only ingredients found in the supermarket. And we transform chickpeas using a bright Greek recipe. But first, we're chatting with Claire Saffitz. She's a pastry chef and also host of Bon Appetit's YouTube series, Gourmet Makes. Claire, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. This is kind of a, a confessional, but I really like watching your stuff on YouTube. And I don't watch YouTube hardly ever. There, there's something, you're kind of a serious person. There. I mean, you're almost there against your will. <laughs> there's a silliness to it, but you've accepted the challenge and are actually trying to figure it out. It's not all fun and games. I mean, maybe that's just my take, but th- there is something noble about your pursuit, I think. Thank you. And I th- I'm glad that you picked up on that seriousness because there are moments where the entire thing feels extremely silly and I do question everything about my life and what brought me to <laughs> another episode of Gourmet Makes. It is a very lighthearted show, but there is real cooking and technique involved, and that's what kind of keeps me anchored. And um, I didn't always see a great justification for spending three days of my time making any one particular snack food. But over time, I started to really understand the process and how, regardless of how much time I spent or how absurd it feels, I've always learned something about cooking or pastry or candy technique, whatever it is. So that's what keeps me going. Give us two or three things you've learned, actually learned about cooking doing the show. Yeah, I've learned a lot about the category of of chewy, gummy, sugary candies, Mm. um, which there's a reason why you don't find a lot of recipes for those kinds of candies. They're extremely hard to make. But I recently learned on an episode making jelly beans that there is a drying process involved. I'm familiar with cooking sugar and corn syrup into candy at different temperatures, at different stages, and always struggled through many episodes of Gourmet Makes from Twizzlers to Sour Patch Kids to get something really chewy. And I realized it was because they're drying in heated rooms um, in large factories in cornstarch, which is drying out moisture. So whether it's real pastry technique, like I get better at tempering chocolate, or it's about some kind of candy making technique or really trying to master nougat, they're all lessons that I can take back with me into my normal job as recipe developer. So that's the part of Gourmet Makes that I... I really enjoy and that makes sense to me, you know, because otherwise why would you spend three days making a Twinkie? There's there's truly no point. It's an excellent question, which may, may be an existential one. Um, <laughs> so what is the formula there or is there no formula that makes this kind of show so successful now? I think overall for Bon Appetit, the approach has been really just to shoot the editors in their environment, in the test kitchen, doing what they do. Um, And I think as food editors, we didn't necessarily, you know, we we weren't aware of the optics from the outside of of what we did, but people find it interesting. And I, I think with Gourmet Makes, the formula is really about 
I mean, part of it is about me going a little crazy every episode, but it really is this kind of reverse engineering process that I think is really interesting that does tap into the regular recipe development process that we go through. So it's a lot of tweaking and tasting and saying, well, this batch, you know, I wish this batch were firmer or this batch could be chewier. And then just testing it and trying to see if you can get closer to the goal. Let's take one of the recipes. I mean, Cheetos has always seemed to me like one of those things that only a factory could produce. I mean, I I can't imagine how one does that. Yeah, it's true. Only in a factory. Only in a factory. And you did it. So could you just take us, just as an example, take us through that process, please? Yeah. The Cheeto episode is an older one. And I, I just recall making basically like a cornmeal slurry and frying it. And I remember using the air fryer a lot. But the thing about Cheetos, what usually happens in an episode of Gourmet Makes is I can either get really close to the right texture or to the right looks. It either looks really good or it tastes really good. And it's hard to to achieve both of those in one episode. And I think with Cheetos, it looked more like a Cheeto than it really tasted like a Cheeto. Certainly with a lot of those fried crispy snacks, the coating, the powdered coating on the outside is a huge part of it. I, w- I felt actually that on the Doritos episode that I was – I think I was more impressed than anyone that tasted the Doritos, how, just how close it, it got to the original. Um, I, I sort of wished people were more <laughs> impressed with my final result. But yeah, the, the crispy ones, I would say that's like a mid-level gourmet makes, crispy snacks. That, that's generally achievable. Of all the ones you've done – which one was your most successful, the one you – or the one you really felt best about your your ability to solve a problem? Let's see. I did enjoy Oreos. I felt like Oreo was a good combination of an episode where I could really draw upon actual pastry knowledge and use things like black cocoa and I made my own molds. I always like when there's a little crafty component to the episode. I like to sort of do that little, you know, some fashioning creative problem solving using the tools in the test kitchen. And at that, I, I went out and bought food-grade silicone putty that you can make into your own molds. Mm. Um, so that, w- that was a fun episode. And I do think that the final product was a really, really great replication of an Oreo. Uh, other than the Oreos, which I guess were slam dunk, anything else that was really a you know, home run for you? Recently, I did Hot Pockets. So that was a really fun one. Because I got to use really fun technique. I did like a little laminated pastry to make kind of a flaky dough and it was yeasted. So, you know, it, it sort of souffled a little bit. And so there was kind of this hybrid, almost croissant-like bread, flaky pastry texture or consistency to the dough. And then just used really good quality ingredients for the filling. So are Hot Pockets just meat pies, essentially? or Hot Pockets are like inside-out pizza, which is how I look at it. Although there's many different fillings and flavors, but that was, that's essentially how I look at a Hot Pocket. It's kind of like a calzone, although they technically call them sandwiches. They're not great. (laughs) They're not my favorite food that we've ever had on Gourmet Makes, but a homemade version is incredibly delicious. And I had a lot of fun blending spices and like working it into the butter block for the pastry. So that was one where I could really be creative and and I was pretty confident about the process. So it it was mostly just fun. I don't know what gushers are. Is that something that was invented after 1969 when I stopped eating <laughs> supermarket candy? What What are gushers? Yeah, I think so. Gushers, to me, as a child of the 90s, gushers are very nostalgic. It was a very common lunchbox gummy snack. Um, 
It's like a little fruit snack filled with this kind of weird, thick, syrupy liquid. They're not particularly good. That was the episode, I think, where I really started to grapple with what I got myself into with Gourmet Makes because that one was really kind of – that one felt out of control even by Gourmet Makes standards. How did you solve the problem of filling something with that stuff? I mean, it, how did you get around that problem? So I used heavily reduced fruit juices. I think I did a pomegranate and a mango, maybe a cherry. So I had heavily reduced, lightly sweetened, like a fruit concentrate basically. And I ended up pouring the kind of gelatin mixture into tiny hexagonal molds, letting them set. And then (laughs) I took two halves of the hexagonal molds, hollowed out a little tiny circle in each, then stuck them together with more gelatin, and then took a tiny syringe and filled them with the sweetened fruit concentrate. So I made them one by one. I think I made like eight gushers after four days, like they're tiny little bite-sized snacks. Um, (laughs) And it was – that was an episode that made me kind of have an out-of-body experience, like this is my life. I can't – you know, I can't believe this is happening. When the world ends, there will be Claire (laughs) filling gushers with a syringe, right? Right, right. I think it did become one of the kind of classic Gourmet Makes episodes. Twinkies was kind of like the pilot, and, and Gushers was when the format was really established. That You know, this is like like we go there in Gourmet Makes, basically. I don't think you can go any farther. <laughs> Claire, thank you so much for being on Mill Street. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. It was great. That was Claire Saffitz, pastry chef and host of Bon Appetit's YouTube series, Gourmet Makes. Right now, Sarah Moult and I are ready to solve your culinary mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, glad to see you. Thank you, Chris. So let's open up the phone lines. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Stephanie from Orleans down on Cape Cod. Lovely spot. I'm jealous already. Come on down. We're always open. Watch <laughs> out for those sharks, though. The sharks' mouths are always open, I should say. Oh, great. That's really terrific. <laughs> uh, how can we help you? Well, I'm feeling very inadequate. I know people have been baking bread for millions of years, and I'm trying to do it with an electric range and measuring cups and the best ingredients, and yet I'm failing miserably. What's going wrong? It's just a simple white bread single loaf recipe with two rises and everything seems to go fine on the first rise it gets way up there but I'm careful not to let it get too high but when I put it in for the second rise it just doesn't get high enough and it takes a long time and I finally just give up and cook it and it's it's edible but it's not okay well it's time for the Sherlock Holmes segment here Uh, let me ask you some questions how are you kneading the dough I'm using a standing mixer with a dough hook. And how long are you needing it? Whatever the recipe is telling me, until it, you know, it seems to be sticking or, or, or coming away from the bowl. And um, it seems to be okay when I put it in for that first rise. And you need it by hand for a minute just when you're finished with that, I assume? Just to feel yeah. it and, you know, to make sure it's not too sticky. So it's um, satiny and smooth and pliable? yes. yes. It doesn't seem to be too sticky to my hand, and it's not too runny. It seems okay. to be good. And you said it gets nice and high. Is it doubling or tripling in the first rise? Well, that was my 
my first poem was I think I was letting it rise too high. Right. Now I keep a careful eye on it. I'm doing it in my oven with a pan of hot water underneath it to sort of keep the oven warm to make it a little proofing box. Yeah. And I do try to keep an eye to make sure it's not going up too high. And I've read varying instructions about punching it down. I've read punch it down really, really hard. And I've read, ooh, don't punch it down too hard because you already have some nice bubbles And which in there. do you do? Are you punching it hard or, or, or deflating it gently? Time, the first times I did try to punch it hard, and it didn't work so well. Right. So I thought, okay, maybe I'm doing it too hard. And I sort of folded it over on itself right. very carefully, and I tried that, and that didn't seem to be much better. Well, two things. Uh, I wouldn't use the oven as a proofing box. I would okay. just do it at room temperature unless it's 55 degrees in your kitchen. Uh, because it may be that that is just creating too much heat. Okay. It's too warm and you're overproofing. Uh, secondly, don't let it more than double in volume. Okay. And third, very, very, very gently deflate the dough because you, you don't want to punch it down lightly. You just want to right. very gently, don't fold it over on itself, just gently deflate it, and that should do it. But if you had a good rise the first time, the yeast is fine. So I would say either you're overproofing or you are overhandling the dough after the first round. Okay. And now my significant other would, <laughs> would, like, would like to comment. Oh, I, I wonder how the wife would feel about that. <laughs> um, I agree with what Chris said. Uh, two thoughts. One is they do actually make these buckets where you can tell if it's, right. you know, literally if it's doubled in bulk. Oh. Uh, you can buy those. King today. Arthur Flowers. King Arthur Flowers, our favorite source. That's one thing. And the other thing is a way to know when it's double in bulk is the innie outy belly button situation. Right. So right. if you stick your finger in the middle of it and it holds your indent, you have an uh-huh. innie, then it's pretty much double in bulk. And be gentle. Wow. Be gentle. Yeah, be gentle. Absolutely. Steph, give that a shot. Steph, thank you. Well, thanks. I will yep. try those suggestions. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Kimberly from Laconia, Indiana. Hi, Kimberly. Uh, how can we help you today? Well, I have an, uh, a question about an ingredient substitution. I've had the question for a very long time, um, but what brought it to the forefront was uh, I was looking at the Bete Noir uh, recipe in the Milk Street magazine, And I came across the ingredient that always gets me in trouble, and that is black pepper. I am allergic to black pepper. So my question is, what would be the next best ingredient to use in the place of black pepper for not only the Bete Noir, but just cooking in general? Well, what black pepper brings to the mix is spicy, pungent, and robust. You know, if you want to combine some heat with that sweet cake, maybe like some dried ginger is a possibility. Ginger is quite spicy. Of course, there's chilies. You could even go the chili route. Are you fine with chili powder? I am. Um, With the chili powders, I guess some things would impart a different flavor. Is there one that you can think of that would, you know, not impart such a distinct flavoring and just still add the pungency? It's hard to separate the two, but one thing I might suggest, and I don't know, Chris is, I'm sure, going to have an opinion on this, is some hot paprika. Okay. <laughs> I'm making noises over okay, here. Okay, all right, all right, you um, go. I don't know if you're allergic to Urfa pepper would be a good substitute. It's moist flakes. It's dark chocolate brown, almost black. It's like peppercorns. It's not super, you know, hot, but has a right. nice earthy flavor to it. I okay. made this recipe, Bete Noir. We should say what Bete Noir is. Yes, yeah, you should. It's a chocolate tort, I guess. It's a one-layer. 
It's about an inch and a half high. It's a fairly dense chocolate tort. And I would say those peppercorns you could just leave out entirely because there's two tablespoons of bitters in this recipe, which is a bit of an odd ingredient. That's much stronger than the peppercorn. So I'd leave it out. My last suggestion would be I would think about taking allspice and something that has some heat because allspice or cloves, there's a little bit of allspice taste in peppercorns. So I I would allspice and a little bit of ground chili pepper of some kind and balance those out. That would get you, I think, somewhat close to peppercorns in an application where you really needed them. But in this recipe, I would just leave them out. It won't hurt the recipe. You got so many other things going on that it's not critical. That's interesting. So the allspice is not something I had considered before. And would you say that that combination would work even in sautéing something or in, you know, an application to a meat? Peppercorns have two things going on. They have some heat, but they also have, as you said, a pungency and earthiness to them. So I think you need two different things. You need something that's going to provide some heat, not too much, and then allspice. Coriander is another thing maybe— You could also throw in some cardamom if you wanted, but I think allspice would be my pick of the thing that's closest to peppercorns with a little bit of heat thrown in. Just give it a shot. Okay. Thank you. And how do you spell the Urfa pepper? That's a fabulous ingredient, U-R-F-A. It's not that hot, but you can put it on scrambled eggs, you can put it on anything, and it has that earthiness which black peppercorns have. That would be a great substitution. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. I'm really excited. No, it's it's one of my favorite ingredients this year. Good. Kimberly, I was glad we were able to help you. Thanks for calling. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a culinary question, please give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Tim from Fort Lauderdale. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm pretty good. How can we help you? Okay. So recently my dad was diagnosed with diabetes. So I was trying to cook a ham and I was trying to figure out a way to get that sort of uh, caramelized brown sugar taste without the brown sugar and without any of the stevia or any of those sort of things. So I found online date paste. Right. I was wondering if there's a way to use the date paste but also caramelize it or give it something that would uh, sort of make it hard like the brown sugar. Well, I'm not a doctor, so I have to ask the question, is date paste okay? Well, so the date paste has a lower glycemic index. So essentially, it's better. It's (laughs) not perfect, but it's better. Moderation is good, but it doesn't spike the blood, which is what's important. I guess I would look to... Date sugar, you can get coconut sugar, palm sugar. There's a lot of unrefined sugars. I don't know whether they are better than white sugar, but that would give you the opportunity to caramelize the ham because you're starting with something that's not as liquid. I don't know how thick date paste is. Kind of a peanut butter consistency. Well, that fine. Spread it on the ham uh, and you could caramelize it. That's not a problem. If it was liquid, it would be a problem. But if it's a... Peanut butter consistency, I think that would, right, Sarah? I mean, that would work fine. It'll caramelize. It's... I would think it would. But, I mean, I also know that um, date sugar is actually just dehydrated dates that have been ground up. So that would be completely acceptable, too. If you were trying to follow a recipe right. that had other ingredients, that might work. And Red Mill, actually, Bob's Red Mill makes date sugar. You can buy that. Yeah. So just a thought. 
I mean, I think either would work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It would probably taste a lot better than brown sugar glaze because it's a more okay. interesting flavor. Yeah. I think you, you may have improved the recipe. Yeah, no, date, yeah. date That's syrup. That's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, date syrup is one of those things, you know, pomegranate molasses, date syrup, they're just boiled down fruits and they have wonderfully complex flavors. So I think this is a, maybe you invented something. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I used a little anise and a little cinnamon, and it, it totally brought it to life. It, just, it wasn't caramelized. Oh, well, then do the date sugar. Okay. The date sugar should be fine. I like the idea of adding a few other spices to it, yeah. too. That's a, that's a great idea. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Good idea. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks Tim. Tim. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Colleen. How are you? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Maryland. And how can we help you? I'm calling about a cheesecake that was made in my family by my grandmother and then my mother's sister. Okay. And somewhere along the way, we lost the recipe. This isn't a classic American cheesecake. Where does it come from? So I can tell you about the cheesecake. I'm not exactly sure, like, what the origin is. Okay. I guess we would describe the cheesecake as almost like a custard. Hmm. I know that ricotta was one of the ingredients. More recently, I was in a bakery, and they were selling a German cheesecake. Mm -hmm. And it looked pretty similar to that. It doesn't look anything like a New York cheesecake. It's only an inch or two high. It's really almost like a custard in consistency. If ricotta's in an Italian cheesecake with ricotta isn't really going to be custardy. It's sort of a different texture. Käsekuchen, cheesecake in German, might be, as you said, what it was. And sometimes they would use quark. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's sort of a yogurt slash cottage cheese cheese that's unripened. And that might give you that kind of creamier custardy texture. I would go get a recipe for German cheesecake you might use a Greek yogurt, maybe strained, you know, let it sit on a colander for a while as a substitute for quark. But I think it's the difference between using Philadelphia cream cheese, you know, which is not going to give you that custardy texture, and something that's wetter and more custardy to start. It's the kind of cheese you're using at the beginning. I mean, you could use some ricotta, but I don't think that would get you right there. Because I've made ricotta cheesecake. I mean, you too, Sarah, right? And it's not really custardy. My friend Jean Anderson wrote a German cookbook, and she had a cheesecake that sounds very similar. And what she did uh, for the cheese is she did use ricotta, but she pureed it mm, that's a in good a food idea. processor. And then the thing about quark, not that I've ever had it, but I've heard, it's tangy. So then she would add to the ricotta, which we know is not tangy, right. she would add some sour cream or creme fraiche. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. What was the name of the book? It's called The German Cookbook by Jean Anderson. Oh. I think Chris is right. It's a German cheesecake. If you did puree the ricotta, you would yeah, lose those idea. little lumps and then add something. The thing about sour cream and creme fraiche is they have very high, well, creme fraiche more than sour cream, butterfat content, unlike yogurt. So that might also give it sort of a right. nice mouthfeel. So that's my suggestion. It's a better suggestion. My okay. God. Good thing you're here. Oh, my God. Chris said something supportive. You will never hear that again. Yeah. But I, I think that's the solution because ricotta cheesecake tends to be on the drier side. Sort of side. grainy, yeah. It's a little grainy, mm-hmm. yeah. But anyway, now I want to go have queso cooking. Yes. Sounds good. All right, Colleen. Well, thank you. Thanks for calling. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Ed Curry, creator of the Carolina Reaper. That and more after this break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook. I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think 
that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Ed Curry. He's the creator of the hottest pepper in the world. It's called the Carolina Reaper. Ed, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. So let's start with the Carolina Reaper. What is the Carolina Reaper? The Carolina Reaper is the hottest pepper in the world, certified by Guinness World Records in November of 2013. So when you say hot, uh, we're talking about the Scoville scale. Yeah, Scoville heat units, yeah. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that scale. How does it work? What do the numbers mean, et cetera? Well, it used to be a, a dilution scale, how much water you needed to use, essentially, before you didn't taste any of the heat from peppers. But now it's measured by a machine called an HPLC, which gives you an actual scientific measurement that tells you essentially what the percentage of capsinoids are per uh, microgram. So uh, to give you an example, a jalapeno like you get at the grocery stores anywhere between 3,000 and 5,000 Scoville heat units. And the Carolina Reaper, the last low average that was certified was 1.641 million Scoville heat units. <laughs> so it's a little hotter. <laughs> well, it's like comparing a roller skate to the space shuttle. <laughs> so what are some other peppers we know? A jalapeno says a few thousand. A habanero is, where does that fit in? The ones you get at the grocery store are somewhere around 60,000 Scoville heat units. They can range up to about 300,000. Uh, what people know as the ghost pepper or the boot jalokia, the record for that is a little bit over a million, but they really average about 600,000. And, and, and cayenne pepper, where would that fit on this? 20,000 at, at the most. Okay, so you're into really hot peppers. What do you do with a million Scoville units worth of pepper? You, you eat it, <laughs> you know. Uh, my wife says we're stupid for eating them because, you know, uh, we get the perception of pain through a chemical reaction with a, a nerve receptor that mammals have. Uh, but there's no actual heat in the pepper. It's just a, a chemical reaction we perceive as heat. Yeah, let's talk about that. Could you just explain that in a little bit more detail? Okay, well, uh, capsaicin, which is the, uh, the chemical compound that we perceive as heat, is actually a poison to our bodies. But you'd have to eat your body weight, you know, in a very short period of time to actually uh, die from it. So what the, what the body is doing is it, it perceives that chemical, we perceive it as heat, and it, it gives you a lot of physiological reactions to tell you, hey, stop eating this. You start to perspire. Your mucous membranes run. Your saliva glands run. Your heartbeat raises. Uh, a lot of people get uh, dilated pupils and... Uh, their eyes turn red like they'd been smoking some marijuana or something. 
You also can get cramps <laughs> in your stomach from it. But uh, it also, uh, capsinoids fill the dopamine receptors in your brain and uh, release huge amounts of dopamine and endorphins. So it gives your body a little bit of a chemical high. So when you're working with cooking with a Carolina Reaper, you definitely want to have gloves on because if you're going to seed it or chop it, you, you do not want to have this touching your hands, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You want to wear and, – and it's funny because we, we use uh, blue nitrile gloves when we're uh, preparing peppers in the kitchen and even when we're at home. And most people put on two because the, the oils from the pepper actually heat through the gloves. So before <laughs> you, you want to you notice that the gloves are getting worn out before it gets to your skin. Because if you touch anything high or low after that, it's not a pleasant experience. Do you cook with a lot of different kinds of peppers? And, and, and could you give us some, some guide to how you think about which ones to use when? We always slice up super hot peppers with every meal. I mean, we do that or, or use uh, pepper oil or an extremely hot sauce just because me and my friends like it really hot. But say uh, if I'm going to make, you know, like a Texas chili or a meat chili or something, I will make that pot with some regular chili powder. Usually I blend up uh, Fresno powder and uh, a cayenne powder and maybe a little bit of habanero just to give it uh, that fruity overtone. And then I'll split the pot halfway through cooking and add some reaper powder or some ghost powder or something on the, the pot that's hot and leave the other one to cook down. Can you get in real trouble eating super hot peppers, especially if you're not used to it, or is it just uh, being uncomfortable for a bit? Oh, well, it's really just being uncomfortable for a bit. There's no hole in your stomach. There's no hole in your esophagus. Uh, but see, those of us who really like super hot stuff, we eat so much of it so fast that we get that endorphin rush. So it, it becomes a, a pain pleasure experience, you know, that uh, thrill seekers look for. Like, you know, the guys who climb cliffs without any ropes or anything. The endorphin rush you get from it. Uh, really uh, makes it worth the experience. Are there other medical benefits or, or applications for capsinoids? Pretty much all sports patches, you know, those uh, make your muscles feel right. better patches and Bengays and stuff. That's all based in capsinoids. There's some studies out there that are working at detoxing narcotic addicts uh, with capsinoids because those same receptors get filled. Uh, there's also uh, some research going on uh, that has to do with headaches. But I leave the medical research to, you know, to doctors and stuff. I, I just like breeding hotter and hotter peppers. So what's your advice to someone who eats, by mistake, a very hot pepper or something that's just incredibly hot at a restaurant? Is there anything you can do to ameliorate the immediate effects or you're just kind of stuck with it? Well, we use lime juice or lemon juice or grapefruit juice because the, uh, the acid helps break up the oleoresin that the capsinoids are in. Huh. Uh, it doesn't make it go away. It just makes it go away faster. Uh, <laughs> there's really not much you can do other than time and ice cubes that won't make you sick. And, you wh and what's the timeline here? So we, how long does it take, 15, 20 minutes to get well, to the end of it? Some people it takes 5, 10 minutes. Some people it takes a half hour. It huh. all depends really on your 
tolerance towards heat and the pH of your body. There's a whole lot of factors that, that go into how long the capsaicin is going to have a chemical reaction going on. Is any of this a psychological reaction or is it all physiological? Oh, no, there's definitely a fight-or-flight reaction that happens, too, because some people don't know what to expect. You know, they, they'll come into our store and say, oh, I've eaten habaneros all my life, you know, or a jalapeno. And then they bite into a reaper and they realize the mistake they've made. And you can see, you can see those who fight have a good time and they go back for more. But those who get that deer-in-the-headlights right, look, right. they're done. They're usually on the floor throwing up, you know. So it, it really all depends on, uh, I guess, your fortitude, you know, what you're made of. You're, you're in a pretty interesting business as some of your customers come in and end up on the floor throwing up, right? Oh, it happens every day at our store. Really? <laughs> yeah. One of our mottos is the Pucker Boat Pepper Company is where hot sauce heroes come to die, you know? <laughs> and people literally come in and all day long and say, hurt me, you know, and uh, I can hurt them. <laughs> Let, yeah, let me drill down on this. This idea of, quote-unquote, hurting me with these very hot peppers, it's, it's kind of – there's a joyfulness to this, uh, I think, you're, you're expressing. Could you explain that to me a little bit? Well, it's – you know, uh, people want to raise the bar in their lives. And the experience that they get from coming to a place with the hottest peppers in the world is something that they can't get everywhere. And people literally stop at the store all day long just to get hit with the hottest things in the world. And mm. uh, I, I enjoy watching them writhe in pain, not because I'm a sadist, but because they came for an experience and I can provide that experience. <laughs> you can provide I've that never experience. had anybody who did not thank me after I've taken them through a gauntlet of heat that they've never experienced before. Hmm. Sometimes it takes a half hour before they can thank me, <laughs> uh, but they always thank me for it. Ed, uh, this has been a real pleasure. It's also been a voyage of discovery for me personally. Thanks so much for being on Milk Street. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an honor. That was Ed Curry. He's the founder and CEO of the Puckerbutt Pepper Company. You know, finding pleasure in pain is really nothing new. Many of us enjoy sad music, a painful massage, maybe an extreme roller coaster ride, or obviously spicy foods. But as Ed Curry explained, eating a Carolina Reaper can not only make you cry, you're also likely to drop to the floor, vomit, and scream in pain. A 2010 article in Scientific American sheds a bit of light on this behavior. Imagine getting a call from your doctor's office saying that you just have two weeks to live. But five minutes later, they call back to say that, hey, they mixed up your lab work and you're actually in perfect health. That relief would be intense and also long-lasting. We now know that pain relief and emotional relief exist in the same areas of the brain. Relieving pain makes you feel better, not just physically, but also emotionally. So maybe eating the hottest chili pepper in the world is not as crazy as it sounds. It's like that old joke about hitting your hand with a hammer. It feels so good when you stop. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Greek-style braised chickpeas with tomatoes and orange. Lynn, how are you? I'm good, Chris. You know, I recently met up with Diane Kochilis. She's the famous uh, Greek cookbook author. She grew up in New York, but she had a lot of family on the island of Icaria off the coast. And as a child, she spent summers there, which was idyllic. I mean, still a very sort of rural throwback place. 
but the food, of course, is also terrific. So uh, one of the recipes that one of our editors brought back from Icaria was braised chickpeas with tomatoes and orange. So this is a really super simple recipe. We didn't change a whole lot from Diane. It's sort of a chickpea stew, but it has the really bright flavor from the tomato and the orange that kind of makes it a little bit lighter. So to start, we're going to concentrate some flavor by cooking down tomato paste and honey and oil. And that's sort of the base flavor for this dish. And then to that, we add some diced tomatoes, a few cans of chickpeas that we've drained. And you want to hold aside a little bit of that chickpea liquid because we're going to add it in a little bit later. And then we cook the chickpeas and the tomatoes until the liquid evaporates. And then we add a bunch of flavor through some aromatics. So we're adding red onions and garlic, bay leaves and rosemary. And then the orange juice goes in and that reserved chickpea liquid. And that's going to add a little bit of body to the dish. And Diane cooks her version in the oven, but we do ours on the stovetop. And from this point, it takes about 15 minutes. So it's about a half hour start to finish? Right. And then when it's done, we take it out and we finish it with a little bit of orange zest and oregano and a drizzle of honey and olive oil. So a Greek-style braised chickpeas with tomatoes and orange, an interesting combination. Very different for chickpeas, which I really like. It's light and fresh. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for Greek-style braised chickpeas with tomatoes and orange at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex I News brews beer at home without a home-brewing kit. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mosey Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Adam in Roanoke, and here's my tip. I love to cook, and I love to travel, and the worst thing about cooking while traveling is that knives in rental homes are almost invariably very dull. So here's what I do. I grab a coffee mug out of the pantry, flip it over, and use the unglazed bottom edge as a sharpener. It won't really make a dull knife sharp, but it usually makes it passable, at least, and definitely saves me a lot of headaches in the kitchen. So that's it. Happy cooking. Thanks. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's mad French food scientist Alex Inews. Alex, uh, what's on your mind this week from Paris? Wow. So uh, this week, uh, I've been trying to brew beer. I've heard recently that basically anybody can brew beer. Have you tried to brew beer, Christopher? No, actually, a, a good friend of mine in her garage started brewing beer a couple of years ago. It was pretty good. So I, I guess anybody can do it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I heard as well, it's, especially in the U.S. where the home brewing scene really is interesting. But still, that statement annoyed me in some ways. Like, <laughs> what if you don't have access to home brewing kit? So that's what I wanted to find out. I wanted to find out if I could brew beer using only things like foods and equipments I could source in a very, very, very average supermarket. Huh, that's... That's a typical Alex I News concept. So what happened? So I went to my local supermarket with a very open mind. And I, I tried to keep focus on the four elements of beer, which are water, yeast, hops, and malt. And, and my goal when I went to that place was to find replacement for each of these. Hmm. Now, obviously, for water, it's fairly easy. I just bought bottles of mineral water. Then things got a bit more complicated. Yeast. So uh, beer yeast, you can't find it in your average supermarket. You can find bread yeast, right. but it's not going to produce the same amount of alcohol, which is just a shame uh, from my point of view. Uh, <laughs> but also it's, it's not going to bring the same flavors because right. yeast is probably the main reason why Beer tastes what it tastes like. The, all, all the funky flavors, uh, s- some citrusy vibes, some freshness, plenty things come from yeast. But I had to buy bread yeast, and that's what I did, basically. Then I moved on to the third element of beer, which is hops. You can't find hops in an average supermarket. There's no way you could find this. I have smelled hops in the past, and I know that they are bitter, but they also have citrusy, grassy flavors to them. So I thought, well, I could basically replace them with things that produce the same effect. Like, for example, in terms of bitterness, I went for chicory, 
uh, dandelion. Mm-hmm. I also went for bay leaves, which bring that grassy, but also some freshness and some bitterness. Right. Then I found some lemongrass. Basically, in the name, you've got lemon and grass, so, so it's just like suited for the job. Uh, <laughs> and, and then I also went for coriander seeds, which will just make that flavor profile a bit more complex. And also coriander seeds is like uh, an ingredient you, w- you would find in wheat beer. So I thought this could bring something. And then on to the last element, malt. So malt is usually, I mean, most of the time, germinated barley. So that's barley that has sprout and then that has been dried. Hmm. So I thought <laughs> barley, well, you can't find this in an average supermarket here. So I went for other types of cereals. So I bought some shredded wheat and rolled <laughs> oats. So, so, so wait a minute, how much do you have to buy? I mean, if you're making beer, did you buy like 12 boxes of cereal or is this a small batch? N- no, it's like less than a pack of wheat and less than a pack of rolled oats. Okay. But then I turned over to the baking section and I found some malt extract that people tend to use in cakes. So I bought this as well. This is basically sugar made for yeast. So remember, water, yeast, hops, and malt. I managed to find somehow the replacement for that. Now, to make beer, it's a bit more complicated than this. You also need equipment. You need a fermenting tank. In my case, I used a big bottle of water. Then I used a cloth bag. It's like a giant tea bag. You stuff all the grains, all the hops, anything that you want to infuse the water with inside. For that, I used a two-ply dishcloth, which I found very easily in my supermarket. Uh, You also need an airlock. Can, can, Can I just stop you for a second now? At the beginning, you said you were annoyed because it calls for all the special equipment. But it, it almost <laughs> seems like that you're, this is harder than if you just went to a beer supply store for 10 minutes and yes. bought the right stuff, right? I mean, really. Yes, but, but I'm also trying to make a point somehow. Okay. I, I want to understand what I'm doing. Okay. That's always my case. Behind all this silly process is just a desire to understand what's happening. So, yes, <laughs> I needed to make an airlock. And an airlock is basically a device that prevents a bacteria from going into a fermenting tank, but that allows the gas, the air, the excess pressure basically to go out. So I made one using a straw and two plastic cups that I glued together. It's a bit complicated to explain on the radio, but it works. The final, the, the, the final thing that you need is a sanitizing agent. And that is a big problem when it comes to making beer. You can't just boil things. So I bought some bleach. Oh, yeah, I, that's what I thought as well. I, I thought exactly the same. Yikes. The problem is that it's the only sanitizing agent I could find in a supermarket. So I bought some. Uh, and basically, I went back home with everything that I just mentioned. And then I started the process of home brewing beer. Now, I'm not going to get too much into the process itself. It's basically mash, then boil, then cool, and then ferment. That's the whole process. You boil things, you infuse, you, you, you make sure to cool everything as rapidly as possible, and then you let the fermentation happen. First in the tank, and then in the bottles. Bottles that I bought at the supermarket as well, by the way. Uh, I just bought beer. You know, with that flip top, mm-hmm. I drunk them and then I kept them. 
Now I know you're going to get some good beer out of this. That's good. Yeah. For sure, exactly. Uh, and, and when I did all that, I was so proud of myself. But then I had a lactobacteria infection, the same one you find in yogurt, in sourdough, right. in, in all these slightly tangy, funky, acidic food. So an infection in beer brewing is not, it's, it's not like a risk in terms of health safety. It's, it just means that your beer is bad. It can, it can be sour. It can be buttery. In my case, it was sour. And it took me a while to figure out where the problem was. And all my research, all my investigation came to one point, the sanitizing agent. Really? That's the problem. That's not doing its job right. So I took bleach and, and I doubled the proportions, but then I ended with a beer that tasted like bleach. Great. Not great. <laughs> so, 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 so you finally, you just went to the store and bought a six pack and called it a day or what? <laughs> no, never. I would never do that. So I reached out to plenty of friends who work in the beer industry. And one of them came back to me with an amazing idea. He told me, have you looked in, in the baby aisle huh. at your supermarket? And he told me they sell tablets that are used to cold sterilize baby bottles. Huh. And it turns out that these tablets are the bomb. They are amazing. Just a quarter of a tablet huh. can sterilize everything I needed. The fermenting tank... Uh, the spatulas, the pot in which I boiled everything, the bags, the beer bottles in the end. And the greatest beauty about this is that you don't even have to rinse your equipment. I have a feeling you're not getting to the end here. And I think the reason is it's not a good ending. Why? Are you, Why? I'm, getting, I'm getting nervous. Like, what happened, man? And no, no, I, <laughs> I made some beer. Yeah. And I, I swear this is the truth. I made some beer and beer tasted Good. Really? I thought it would taste decent. I thought if it's going to taste like average or even below average, I'm going to be fine with this. I think it tasted good. Of course, I'm biased. So what I did, I took it to a pub in London, <laughs> in the UK, and I made people taste my own beer. And, and, and I gave them two samples. One was coming from a commercial beer, commercially available beer. And the other one was coming from my own batch. And they had no information whatsoever, and they just had to decide which one they prefer. And most of them, and I'm not making that up, most of them preferred my beer, which doesn't mean it was amazing, but still, it was standing against a commercially available beer. So in the end, I think we've got an answer. It's possible to make beer using only what you can source in an average uh, supermarket, which is great, but also, by doing so, you can learn a lot and, and probably more than if you were to use a home brewing kit. That's what I think. Out of this whole story, the part I like the most is this French guy shows up at a London pub for a beer tasting. <laughs> I mean, Terrifying. I mean, the, the French are not known for their beer, let me put it that way. For sure not. <laughs> well, at least you have great courage. Alex Inews, another journey, uh, this time to make beer without using official beer-making supplies. Once again, you did it. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much. That was YouTube host Alex Inews. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. 
Alex Inews loves to make stuff from scratch, and perhaps this is more than an urge to work with one's hands in an age of convenience. So I really suspect that Alex is trying to uncover the mysteries of the universe through everyday objects. Making beer is about, well, creating life. Simple grains are transformed through fermentation. By stepping just beneath the surface, Alex finds a fascinating universe of, say, mathematics. How can a few simple turns and folds create puff pastry with one million layers? And also kitchen science when he transforms everyday noodles into ramen noodles. So take just one step into the science of cooking, and you enter a complex world of chemistry, of physics, and also history. And that is the mad, mad world of Alex Inews. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, please download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our TV show, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.